0: This week on the Back Table podcast.
1: I think the important thing is this storytelling and letting women tell you their stories. So you can really listen to what their bleeding is like, what's been tried, what's worked, what's not worked. We have so many stories where women are not listened to. And especially for women of color, it's for everybody, but especially for women of color. The issues of bleeding, we underestimate the poor quality of life.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable OBGYN podcast, your source for all things obstetrics and gynecology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on backtable.com. Welcome back to another episode of Backtable OBGYN. This is your host, Mark Hoffman, and I've got with me again our host, Amy Park. We have a very special guest today, someone who I'm a huge fan of and someone you know as well. We have Dr. Linda Bradley. Dr. Bradley. Linda, how are you?
1: I'm great.
0: Well, we're excited to have you here and welcome to the show. Dr. Bradley is a professor of obstetrics and gynecology and reproductive biology at Cleveland Clinic. She is the director of the Center for Menstrual Disorders, Fibroids, and the Hysteroscopic Services. Did I get those right?
1: You got it perfectly.
0: Wonderful. And for everyone who is involved in any society or in gynecology in general knows she is an internationally recognized expert and in innovator, in advanced office and operative hysteroscopy, and it's my absolute pleasure to have you on here to pick your brain so all of our listeners can learn about all the amazing things you do. So thanks again for coming on and welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for asking me.
0: All right. So like we do for most episodes, uh, we like to ask our guests to tell us a little bit about themselves, tell us about your practice.
1: Well, my practice for the last several decades has been at the Cleveland Clinic, and during my residency, there was no hysteroscopy. It was three DNCs, you strike out, you get a hysterectomy. So I feel like I'm always a lifelong learner. There was no fellowship back in the day. There weren't mentors to teach me. And I happened to go to an AAGL meeting with some of the more eminent physicians at the time, there are three of them that I have a lot of respect for, that really opened my eyes to what's inside the uterus. And the half-life of medicine is only a couple of years, probably months now. And being out of training in residency and even working for a couple of years, I was like, this is incredible beauty of the uterus, the endocervix, the tubal ostia I need to know about this. And so watching others through the AAGL, I was able to follow up and call some of the speakers on Jay Cooper, Frank Lawfer, Paul Inman, I could just name many of the greats. And they were so kind, didn't know me from Jane, and really talked me through a lot. And I think for me, a picture speaks a thousand words. And I'm always someone who tries to be a very early adopter for certain procedures, certain medications. So basically, to answer the question more succinctly, it's just, I went, I saw, and said I must do, and got started.
0: It's hard to imagine. I mean, whenever I think about incorporating a new technology or new procedure into my office these days, it's not easy to get your hospital to buy anything these days. But thinking back a few years ago when you were doing something that just sounds like not very many people were doing, Was it a challenge where you were to bring these things in? Did people think you were like doing something crazy that you shouldn't be doing? Was it, were people excited about it where you were?
1: I think working at the Cleveland Clinic, which is over 100 years old, and we're most known for innovation, innovation, innovation. So when I came to the clinic and said, I think this is something that we should be doing, they were all for it. I have not practiced obstetrics since I've been at the clinic, and this really was a new domain, a new technology. So I was really very lucky that I was interested and pursued this. And I think at the Cleveland Clinic, I'm not saying other hospitals aren't for that, but just getting started, the excellent outcomes, the minimal um, number of complications, the brevity of doing procedures in the office, and then subsequently in the operating room, I think good outcomes breed more patients, breed the ability to get more instruments. And I'm speaking specifically right now, of office-based procedures that then carry you on, meaning diagnostic procedures that then allow you to do surgery. I do on the average right now, 10 to 12 operative hysteroscopies a week. This is all I do. I don't do Pap tests. I mean, if someone needs it, it, is going to have a hysteroscopy, I'll do it. I don't prescribed birth control pills. I don't do OB. I don't do chronic pain. I don't do urogyne. Literally all of my patients have bleeding problems, follow-up, fibroids, polyps, retained products of conception, bleeding of unknown origin. Today I did nine office hysteroscopies. Tomorrow I'll do eight. So my practice is only at the Cleveland Clinic okay? It's probably the one of the few places even a cardiothoracic surgeon doesn't do every valve in the heart or stents or aneurysm. So we are heavily focused on people's passion, expertise. I'm happy to say I've done over 10,000 office hysteroscopies that then give you the surgical procedures over the last many decades. It's an easy place to work if especially in the subspecialty division, you don't have to do everything, but you have to be busy and you have to be productive and you have to write, lecture, be involved with committees. So the clinic, in my mind and in my era, really allowed me to grow as much as I wanted to grow and to learn and to continue to learn for others. Amy was not at the clinic at the time, but our older CEO, who's retired, had every physician at the clinic doing what's called an innovation trip. So if you were a surgeon to go work with the best surgeon and what you want to do, if you're a pediatrician to go work with, the, even if it's a generalist, how do you do the best history, the physical exam? If you were a psychiatrist, everybody got a week off, paid for. It was an expectation, a high expectation that you go, you come back and you bring back something that you've learned.
0: That's incredible.
1: You know, It's a visionary institution run by physicians, more so in the old days. And for me, I take all those opportunities. We have a tremendous travel policy I use every day that I'm given to go, to learn, to do. And I think when you know better, you start doing better. That's been my pleasure of working at the clinic, is to extend, especially in the area, rather, of hysteroscopy, Something that a lot of people, sadly, aren't that interested, even in 2023. I mean, hysteroscopy is minimally invasive surgery, okay? And it is not a DNC, okay? And so I think it's not sexy. And it's a shame that folks do not use the technology, the tools that help women so much.
0: I'm a fan, and that's why I had you on here. I was thrilled to get to chat with you uh, at meetings whenever I see you. I want to take an innovation trip and spend a week with Linda Bradley. Honestly, if I could have one week, and I've talked to you about this. I, there's things that you're doing that I don't think very many or maybe anyone in the world is doing, or at least not that I know of.
1: Oh, gosh. Oh, I, I, I'm not going to accept that. I think there are lots of my colleagues who are gifted, interested, passionate, crazy about. I'm not going to say I'm all that, but I think there are a lot of people who share my passion
2: that's so cool, Linda, that you were able to develop this interest and niche and were allowed was allowed to pursue it. I'm just curious, I wanted to delve into like the historical context because it sounds like it was really blind curatage and then the addition of the hysteroscope and then the flexible hysteroscope and the operative hysteroscope. Can you just tell us how you see the arc of hysteroscopy like historically? I mean, now, even since I trained a while ago, we have the advent of TrueClear and Miescher. And, and, you know, when I was a resident, bipolar cautery for the resectoscope had come out. What are your thoughts? How do you see it having evolved over time? Well, I'm really proud to say
1: that last year I was asked by Jason from the Green Journal to write an expert uh, opinion on the topic of office hysteroscopy. So it was published and the September 22 edition. And within it was the article we, we entitled. it something like implementing office hysteroscopy. It has 30 videos that folks can click on, about 30 images of different things that you can see. And so what I realized and what I put in my last paragraph of the article, and I've been saying for a long time, and I said, you know, somebody's going to pick up this little saying that I say, but I say that my hysteroscope is my stethoscope, okay? My husband's an internist, and one day I'm just looking at him with his stethoscope, and we're talking about patients, and your stethoscope, you know, you can listen to carotid breweries, you can listen to lung sounds, listen to bowel sounds, listen for murmurs, determine if you have LES and things like that. And so when I think about the stethoscope, it's used for many things besides just heart-related things. And so my hysteroscope is my stethoscope. It's not always about bleeding. It could be retained products of conception. It could be evaluating women to see if they have Asherman's. It could be evaluating why is the endometrium thick on a regular transvaginal ultrasound, or the ultrasound shows that the endometrium is ill-defined, not seen in its entirety, equivocal. So all bleeding from even puberty. You can use your hysteroscope as a vaginoscopy. Lots of little girls. Again, now we have pediatric gynecology, but I used to be called for bleeding, and we would take the flexible scope because you don't dilate. Lots of little kids have marbles, pens, pennies in the vagina. We're seeing that in elderly women now, Foreign bodies, we're living older, dementia, Alzheimer's. So not all bleedings from the uterus, and you can pick up like probably once a year, I pick up one or two cases of vaginal cancer for bleeding. You can look do a vaginoscopy and look for enduration. And so all the bleeding from, to say what I call the three blood phases of a woman's woman's life, from puberty to the reproductive years to the menopausal years, the hysteroscope lets you look directly inside the endocervix, which is not well seen with ultrasound, the endometrium. Sometimes there's small lesions near the tubal osteo. Um You can look, how did you do? What's your thumbprint or footprint that you left after surgery? When I do very difficult operative hysteroscopies, I took out a patient, 28 intracavitary fibroids and a woman who wanted a baby. You better be sure I want to look and see a few weeks later how that uterus is healing. And I'm happy to say for her, unnamed person, she just had a baby, okay? And so I like to look at my efforts for some things after surgery. So we look at all the bleeding issues, foreign bodies, broken IUDs. From China, back in the old days, they would put in these ring. IEDs.
0: The steel the steel rings.
1: Yeah. So without a string, took those out. Women that are 80 years old, they happen to fall and break their hip. They get a CAT scan. Oh, my God, there's a idea, a loop. I used to have a little drawer with all, I wish I hadn't thrown them away, but I did, all the sort of foreign things. I've seen a cerclage inside the uterus. I mean, there's a lot of different things that you can see. You can follow it up for hyperplasia. You know, we're using the levonorgestrel IUD. Instead of doing blind sampling, you can look, you can do directed biopsies, you can do targeted biopsies. So I'm just saying it is a shame, and I'm quite embarrassed that in 2023, When we look at for bleeding disorders in women or reproductive menstrual dysfunction, that use of a blind technology, whether it's a pipel or, God forbid, a blind DNC, which we call dead and cremated, that we as a society, our gynecologists, for bleeding, that we do not look. And I say the same old thing that everyone says if you have hematuria, you're going to do a cysto. If you're having rectal bleeding, you're going to get a sigmoidoscopy or colonoscopy. If you're vomiting up blood, You're gonna get an endoscopy. And so there's no other specialty in which a scope is not used for certain things. And I personally think it is a disservice, tremendous disservice to women to say that, oh, your pipel biopsy is negative. What does negative mean? I tell the residents only helps you if your pipel gives you cancer or atypical hyperplasia. Because what we know from great studies with blind technology is that we miss focal lesions. You miss fibroids. One of our residents just published, it was her abstract poster, then publication, oh, about 2,000 patients. Everybody was bleeding, whatever age or whatever, biopsy in the office, but they either had a saline infusion sonogram or hysteroscopy. So if the SIS showed a polyp or fibroid, even when the biopsy was negative, we took them to the OR and the final path would be the gold standard is your fibroid or or your polyp. And when you looked at close to 600, 800 women, of those who had fibroids that I resected or that a doctor resected, how many times do you think the pipel picked up? She's bleeding, bleeding. We did the pipel first, often in the visit, and then they would have the SIS or hysteroscopy. And then you take them to the surgery because of a focal finding being seen. And focal could be a three or five centimeter intracavitary fibroid or huge polyp. And I look at a lady yesterday, five centimeter postmenopausal bleeder for three years, office biopsy negative. Okay. I go inside, huge polyp. Okay. We'll find out what her path is. But getting back to our study and your own experience, how often on your own pipe biopsies in your career have you picked up a fibroid for pathology? Any of you? Never. Of course not, unless it's degenerating. So our study showed that zero out of all the hundreds of fibroids that were there when they had their, quote, pre-office biopsy. So it was kind of, if you stopped at that, then the patient, when they don't get the right diagnosis, they don't even get the privilege of having a most minor procedure. My six patients yesterday, I've called them all. Nobody goes home with anything but Motrin. They're feeling well. Did you do any procedures? Minimal bleeding, they can go back to work two days later, they could drive today, they can have sex in a week, um, you're not getting them on narcotics. There's just so many uses for hysteroscopy and allowing us to say, in a menopausal woman, we look inside, you know, 70% of bleeding in menopause is from atrophy. They, the, If you look inside, I jokingly say that the endometrium looks ball-headed. There is nothing there. If I give you a coma or a brush and you have no hair, there is no hair there. There is no there. It is negative because there is no endometrium, or it'll say inactive, or it'll say atrophic, or they'll just say no endometrium. But when I then get my pathology back, I can say she's bleeding from atrophy.
2: I think that the cool thing is I know one of my partners in DC, Jim Robinson, used to do the Asherman's and the sometimes even the some septum resections in the office. But definitely the Ashman's. I was surprised about that. But being able to do the septum resections uh, uh, hysteroscopically is huge. It's so much less morbid than doing a whole abdominal approach or correct, whatever. So
0: my my next question, you obviously uh, have done this before, but you you answered our next question of what conditions can be treated with hysteroscopy. It sounds like basically everything.
1: Well, I wouldn't say that. I'd like to first say there's two roles to hysteroscopy. One is diagnostic and the other is therapeutic. And when you do surgery, it is a mentally invasive surgery. It is when I went to one of the hospitals that I was a new, I was first working only out of main campus, the Cleveland Clinic, and then the city has grown. The Haas Cleveland Clinic bought eight other community hospitals. So I, many of us were told is getting so busy at main campus, you need to move these outpatient types of procedures out. So I go to the hospital, another smaller hospital to be named unnamed. And there were a group of doctors from another hospital that used to practice there that were gynecologists. And I just asked, I said, oh, do you have hysteroscopy and the DNC equipment? And something, t- oh, yes, all of our doctors do hysteroscopy and DNC. So something said, let me just, can you open a tray? Show me what it is. And so what those physicians did was basically put a hysteroscope in. They didn't have a resectoscope. There wasn't maybe a tissue morselator, but there were resectoscopes. And they looked. They then took out the DNC, the curette, and scraped the heck out of the uterus and called it a day. And that is not hystroscopic surgery, okay? My definition of hystroscopic surgery is a uninterrupted visualization and removal of pathology that's there. Uninterrupted. You look, I never, ever, ever put a curette in a woman's uterus anymore, ever, okay? It would be so rare Why do it? Because you can see nothing's blind. I know I haven't perked. I know I have a lesion. And I know if I've got a, especially for fibroids, the type zeros, yes, ones and twos, I know I have all of it taken out. So I think that's important. And it's very interesting. I haven't told this story, but that physician, the anesthesiologist is now retired I'm a little feisty sometimes, and so he says to me in the OR with a med student and a resident and a fellow and the nurses, you know, the patient's asleep, and he kind of puts his hands on his chest and says to me, young lady, I've never seen anybody take this long to do a hysteroscopy D&C. So I kept my cool, patient awakens, and I said, you know, Dr. So-and-so, I want to speak with you. Do you have an office on this floor? I went into his office, I closed his door, and I said, don't you ever speak to me in this fashion around my colleagues and peers and students. If you have something to say, please talk to me privately. We're both adults. And I said, I don't play peekaboo hysteroscopy. I am not putting a scope in, then taking it out, scraping around, maybe not even looking again. And so I said, I'm doing surgery. And blah, blah, blah. And I also said to him, I don't ever want you to touch a patient of mine. I don't want to work with you. And I don't want you to be assigned to any of my cases. And because it was a very, I just started at this hospital that is Cleveland Clinic, but it was so rude and unprofessional. And I didn't do the kind of surgery that those other doctors at the other hospital do. And so I think that's where it could take long. You know, I would have residents speak to me, oh, so and so could have done a vagus. And I said, yep, but no one's going to get into a ureter, not going to have dehiscence, you're not going to need antibiotics, you're not going to need narcotics. They can have sex in a week. For small or large intracavitary pathology, the rest of the uterus and at Nexa are fine. There's no other reasons to take out the uterus. Tell me why I shouldn't spend an hour if it takes me that long that the patient goes wakes up, goes to the recovery room an hour and a half, goes home and is doing things in short order.
2: Circling back to the office hysteroscopy, you know, one of the big things that people are talking about now is like regarding cervical manipulation, like IUD placement and pain control. Do you often do a paracervical block and what's your philosophy on that? And then also regarding the financial incentives I know now office hysteroscopy gives a lot of RVUs and then, you know, transitioning that OR diagnostic hysteroscopy to the office. I mean, you kind of live through that transition. So I'm just curious about like what your philosophy is on the pain and the tricks that you do for the office. So I think
1: preparation, preparation, preparation and patients being informed of what they're going to do. Now, there's different hysteroscopes, and each of us is going to like what we like for diagnostic. You know, it's like if you're a golfer, you have your clubs that you like. If you are a skier, you have your skis that you like. If you bowl, you have a ball that they could have three 10-pound, 15-pound balls, but there's something that you like. My workhorse in my office for diagnostic is a flexible hysteroscope. Okay, it is 3.2 millimeters. There are names of other disposable hysteroscopes that I've tried, but I think in my hands, these skis work for me. This bowling ball works for me. Yes, there are others and everybody should try. So the flexible scope, I usually, it's 3.2 millimeters. You don't have to dilate the patient. I don't, I used to put a tenaculum on and sound everybody. I don't do any of that. And I have my patients to eat before coming If we know that they're coming, we have them to take an NSAID if they're allowed to or Tylenol. The nurses prep them. We tell them that it's brief. It's usually very comfortable. I do have a paper early on for a visual analog, and most of the patients have very low low pain scores, and so do other physicians. At one point, I was also very proud to have been one of the first physicians to do hysteroscopic sterilization in the country with Eshore. Of course, that's gone now. I went to Mexico to train on women that were having hysterectomies. And they immediately, we put the devices in and they had the hysterectomies, make sure we were doing it properly. And then it came back to the U.S. We at the Cleveland Clinic, I was a part of that clinical trial that was ultimately FDA approved. And uh, we started doing those in the office. And I'm being very honest. I can tell you what protocols are. I haven't put a paracervical block in in probably 20 years. I don't use them. I have found, and if they're young, multiple leaps, cones, all C-sections. I have them use cytotech or mesoprostol by mouth, 400 micrograms the night before, or if they're menopausal. And so I think I can talk with you about pain regimens. The risk of a vagal vagal is so low. It's just very, very low. So I think there are doctors that use larger scopes, that use rigid scopes, that may need to do the paracervical with the quarter percent marquee with the deep paracervical blocks. You're asking me my opinion for the things that I've done even when I started to do eshore and Histoscopic sterilization in the office. They ate before coming. We might give Toradol, The night before, 12 hours, I might say take uh, 600 of Motrin two or three times a day the day before to help with the prostaglandin release and all of that. But I just, that's just me. But there are others who give Valium. There's others that have them to have a driver uh, that use a marking spray. I mean, there's all kinds of things that are used. And sometimes if you ask me putting in these paracervical blocks, some people use epi, and then they get the racing heart. Sometimes they just all this other stuff we do, to me, creates more of an issue. I don't do paracervical block tray. I don't have one. Uh, where does she keep her medicine? We don't have it. So um, now what we are going to be doing, and I can publicly say this because we just had a meeting on Monday, we're going to be trialing several newer devices that will allow us to do larger polyps. I would never personally do a myoma in the office. Um, I would not do personally for me or retain products in the office because of absorption and bleeding. But there may be some things like the polyps, which are very common, or things like that in the office. So uh, these devices might be a little bit larger, but I've also read and talked to physicians that are using them that the preparation, eating, and an inset. I don't give Valium. I don't give Demerol or an opioid to the patients. You know, we do the sort of the pelvic trauma informed care kind of thing. I'm not going to force any of this on someone who's had incest, domestic violence, sexual violence. As easy as it might seem for some patients, it's better to be done in the operating room. So you know, we have to listen to our patients and be very patient centric.
0: So mm-hmm. my my experience in the in the office has been anything from a rigid hysteroscope or a flexible hysteroscope as well as some of the disposable devices. And I have to say, in fellowship, they had a few of the flexible, I think similar 3.2 millimeter flexible scopes. And I got to where you could drive and not touch the walls. And it seemed to me that if you could avoid the walls of the cervix, if you could avoid the walls of the uterus, there really wasn't much in the way of pain. You'd get some pain from some cramping from filling the uterus with saline. But for, for diagnostic purposes, if you could drive that scope without bumping stop. Because we all know when you get in there, I almost never dilate in the operating room with you, just put the scope in. But you see the track, right? You see the landing strip where people have dilated every single time. And if you could avoid the walls, you can avoid pain. Is that your experience as well? Yeah,
1: I tell my resident, or ask my residents, now they know all my questions, right? When you go on, what are you gonna see? Okay, you should be looking for the black hole. White is not right, okay? You need to go, like you said, and that just means that black hole is where you need to be. If you're seeing white, you're touching the cervix. You're touching something. And so back up, pivot, whatever you're going to do to find that. I'm talking, even under anesthesia, because if you are seeing white, the next thing under anesthesia, patient's not going to say it hurts. You've perfed. And so... The answer to the question is look for the black hole and then guide yourself. So I totally agree with you, Mark.
0: I've tried to get those where I am. It's tough because we don't have access to sterile supply in our clinic. And so those reusable scopes, the flexible ones, are, are a little tougher to get. And so they've been able to get the disposables. They're a little bit bigger. But because you don't have the control, because you can't move the angle of the scope and avoid the wall, that's everything to me. So if they can come up with a scope that is articulated and disposable, and then I think you've made a, a significant advance for office hysteroscopy in terms of access because that's the biggest thing. But my main question was for you with diagnostics is you mentioned my hysteroscope is my stethoscope. So when patients come to see you and they're complaining of bleeding, what percentage of them get hysteroscopies? Is it 100 is it every patient that comes to you the same way that I'll do a pelvic exam just to take a look at the cervix?
1: Well, our like Amy's practice. The benefit of being a super subspecialist is all the other stuff has been ruled out in general, right? So I basically everybody's had a blind sampling. Everybody's been on Provera, five different birth control pills.
0: They've had ultrasounds.
1: Well, but regular ultrasounds are worthless. They need an SIS if they're <laughs> going. If you don't have a hysteroscope, you need to put it do an SIS. So for me, people have already come. It's just like being a generalist and a woman comes with a bag of ointment and she's had bulbar itchy. And you say to her, you know, Ms. Jones, have you had a biopsy, no, in 20 years, I've just been using all these creams and ointments and and you take a biopsy and you find lichen sclerosis. You look like you're pretty smart. You're not that smart, but we just have done something different. So for me, a failure of medical response to how you think that patient's going to be, those patients will have a hysteroscope because I'm not going to go back and give them another trial of agestin, provera, megase, birth control pills, whatever people use. So it's a little hard mark for me to say. I mean, do I ever get new patients? The answer is yes. You know, women are more than the some of their body parts. So you get the history. You get, do a pelvic exam if a patient has a uterus 25-week size and bleeding all the time. Yes, we do need to know what's going on, but then there may be other reasons. But for the normal size uterus with the, whatever her bleeding story is, and a recent study, Italian study says if you happen to find out that a patient's CBC with their hemoglobin is eight, 7 or 8 or below, 70% of the time you're going to find intracavitary pathology polyp. I mean, we're just talking about polyps and fibroids. And so, you know, the patient has post bleeding. If I'm seeing her for that, the first thing I'm going to do, I'm not ordering an SIS for that. I'm going to look, see, does she have an ectropion, cervical version, or an endocervical myoma? Today, in fact, I just scheduled someone, a nurse today, who's had two, quote, cervical polyps removed. She's had another patient, three years of bleeding. You could see the little kidney-shaped polyp. But what do we learn from some literature? One out of six women with a cervical polyp have an endometrial polyp, and she had two or three other endometrial polyps. I'm not going to twist that off in the office today, but I'm going to go and I'm going to get those other three polyps that were inside and then take off the cervical. So I think it is hard for me to have an algorithm driven, like when I use a scope, but there are some definite reasons why I would always use a scope, and there are reasons that I might use some other technology. You see what I'm saying? And so I think the important thing is this storytelling and letting women tell you their stories so you can really listen to what their bleeding is like, what's been tried, what's worked, what's not worked. We have so many stories where women are not listened to. And especially for women of color, it's for everybody, but especially for women of color, the issues of bleeding, we underestimate the poor quality of life the number of physicians that they see, just like endometriosis. I mean, I am on a paper with Elizabeth Stewart and others from the Mayo Clinic where we looked at about 1,000 women. This is with fibroids. We're not speaking specifically about hysteroscopy, if I can divert my attention from that for a second. But the average patient, like endometriosis, they're almost like hand-in-hand, three to five years, three to five different physicians. So what you'd say to a patient, Tell me how many providers have you seen? If they've seen three, four, or five, the buck stops with you to work up their bleeding in a decidedly different way with technology that works in your hands. And it should not be another regurgitation of the same medicines again. Um, It doesn't make us look very smart. And so for me, and sometimes it's just the story. So it just doesn't sound normal for just a normal period. A regular, predictable period that a woman's had for all these years, and now she's hemorrhaging for seven days, can't work, socially embarrassed, doesn't go out, misses her kid's stuff, normal uterus, nothing on the cervix. You better look in her uterus. That's not an anovulatory cycle. You know, I mean, people can have that sort of anovulatory cycle, and it coexists with a polyp or a fibroid. I did the cases yesterday, a 49-year-old Someone did a, quote, DNC a while ago, disorder proliferative endometrium. She's bleeding all the time. It was a blind DNC. I looked in there yesterday, polyp and an endocervical myoma. Um, I'd already predicted that from the office workup, but I took her to surgery to resect out or remove these lesions. So I think, look at the patient, listen to her story. How many of you, I tell my patients, I said, I don't save anybody's life. I'm not a cancer doctor, but I can improve the quality of your life. Look at your patients, asking them, how do your periods affect your life? You know, I'll have people who say, oh, her hemoglobin's 11 or 12. The lady is bleeding, wearing diapers, pads, special panty underwear now for periods. I was asked to do an article for somebody or interview for someone in Europe because Europeans are more flexible with time off and things like this. And someone saying, well, I think women with heavy periods, can you speak to why they need to be off of work? I'm like, no, they don't need to be off of work. They need to have a hysteroscope or an SIS to look at why they're bleeding. There's just that that bit of humanism of medicine and the doctoring of medicine and listening to patients, to me, is so important.
2: Well, Linda, well, let me just ask you, I think you've eloquently described why, the why of why should people be getting hysteroscopes and why we should be offering them? But can you just give insight into how would you advise trainees to gain the skills? Be curious. Listen, this
1: first hysteroscope was done, I think, in 154 years ago. It's just how can you practice blindly?
2: How about the technical skills? Like, how did you, are there simulations? Are there ways to practice? Do you have to do a fellowship? is this like something we can pick up with time? How do you get better at this blind? I mean, you have to do some cervical dilation for operative hysteroscopy. How do you get familiar with managing fluid deficits and all the things? I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. It's not like when they're easy, they're easy. When they're hard, they're hard. That's how surgery is. Like, how do you approach that? And I'm curious about your thoughts too, Mark, because you're we're all involved in, in trainees and, they're getting less and less time to learn.
1: I mean, you have answered it. Like I said, for myself, I just looked and said, oh my God, I have to learn this. And I have my first slide for every lecture almost is a picture of a hysteroscope. It's all red and we call it the Japanese flag sign. First 50 cases, I probably, all I saw was blood. But I knew Jay Cooper, Endemen, Phil Brooks, <clears throat> Dr. Lawfer. I saw their pictures. I was like, I'm going to keep learning this. And again, you're, my training was self-instruction because we did not have anybody in Cleveland residency for where I was at the other hospital or at the Cleveland Clinic doing this. And so I just said, this is not a big space to navigate. Now, if you asked me to do a response fixation by myself, I'd be like, oh my God. But I think now you answer the question. One is simulation. Number two, we're going to both push our societies that we're active in. This year's AAGL meeting in November at Nashville, postgraduate courses, you have your simulators. And again, you hope that you can start with someone that's doing something so that the blind is not leading the blind. I think how I did this decades ago will probably be more frowned upon, but that's kind of how it happened. So I would say now, there, hopefully there is a champion at someone's institution, residency, or fellowship that they can try to spend more time in the Cleveland Clinic, we have the tracking program where the residents may spend more time in a certain area. I do think the coursework, just going to lectures, looking at what's possible, you're right. I mean, we're not talking today about fluid management. There are particulars things to do, No Trendellenburg, the f- different fluid management systems. There's a whole cottage industry around being safe. I don't know what trainees, if they're allowed to go other places to observe Basically now is a days it's finding a mentor and then it's like an apprenticeship, watching, learning, and then doing.
0: I agree with what you're saying, but I also think that we have more opportunities in training than we realize. And I think one of the things I noticed specifically with hysteroscopy, I was always fascinated by it. I loved it. They're my favorite cases. I think when you do a really tough hysteroscopic case and you just like walk away and there's like no incision to close. Like there's just, there's they go home and like ibuprofen and Tylenol, you just feel like you've done something really special for them. But you also, I think people think of hysteroscopic cases as though that's like an intern case or a, a second year case because hysterectomies and majors are really what I need to be doing at my upper level, in my upper levels. I think these are cases that can be really challenging. And these are cases that there is a skill to hysteroscopy. There's absolutely a skill. Just sometimes on the difficult case to get in. I see all the time where I'll be with a the resident, they'll start the case and they grab a dilator. I'm like, whoa, stop. Stop stop stop. Don't no no. Put get that away. And they'll take the the giant operative scope. I say, hold on, stop. There's a diagnostic scope right there. You put it together. You know how to use it. Okay. They're still having trouble. Okay. There's an outer sheath. Take the outer sheath off. Use just the just take off the outflow. You've got a tiny little scope. Walk right in. And they go, Oh wait, we didn't have to put a clamp on. We didn't dilate, and all of a sudden you you walk in there, and the cavity goes posteriorly. And you go, "Oh, wait! It's a good thing we look, because you would have perforated anteriorly while you were dilating." And just this idea that with this, you're going to dilate blindly, and you're going to because I can't get my scope in. It is an art, like all of surgery. There is a nuance. There is a skill set that I think we have too low an expectation for advanced hysteroscopy. We have a too low an idea about what it can be. And I think that one of the reasons why I always try to find you at meetings is because I want to know how I can do more. I think about the operative hysteroscopy that I want to talk about in just a second, but some, it's just as simple as the diagnostic part of it. You're just getting there sometimes on the tough hysteroscopes, where you got this, I, I can see where someone would perforate and where the disaster happens. And you, you got to see it ahead of time and know how to prevent that. But I do think challenging our chiefs to really continue with hysteroscopy for four years, not just Oh, this is a junior level case. I think that's something that is, is important. I mean, hysteroscopic myomectomy is you have, I think, five different variables all happening at once, right? You've got the camera, you know, rotation. You've got the rotation of the actual device, so the, which is above camera uh, below. You've got the instrument rotation. You've got the instrument in and out. Plus, you've got a pedal. So, there's four to five or six different things moving at once, okay? And you've got to keep your horizon. It's not a straightforward procedure. It sounds like, oh, camera cutting device, simple. There is absolutely a skill. That's just for like a masher and the and the is a whole other thing. But it takes doing a lot of these, like any skill. So my feeling is you have to understand how valuable it is, but also understand what the potential is to know how hard to work to get there and not settle for a low bar, not settle for, oh, I can throw a scope in there. That's no big deal.
1: You know, people used to ask me, do I do badges, And the answer would be yes. But I did the easiest ones. You couldn't be overweight. You couldn't have had a C-section. You hadn't had to have a baby. I mean, I just did. And I'm embarrassed as a gynecologist to say that I would make a referral. And so like yesterday was a very interesting day. You know, this patient had two C-sections. and I met her in the office because the doctor postmenopausal bleeding again. But it was a two hour for me to get her cervix dilated. Two hours. Okay, I'm just like somebody that is, I know I can do it, got frustrated, but she has gone two to three years of bleeding. We can't get in. It's so tucked up and underneath her, probably the uterus was stuck to her abdominal wall. Yeah, that was not an easy case. Once we got in, it was easy. But the whole challenge for sort of a topic expert is getting in to that cervix and several people had taken her to the OR and couldn't get in. And then I also... The way our practice is, I'm a, considered a consultant. And people fly all over the country. Have had two procedures. Have had a uterine perf and complete resection. You know, and they've just got something that needs to come out. I'm always feeling like, I mean, I've got to do this, and I will just work until I get in. Sometimes it just doesn't work, but it's luckily it's not that often. But yeah, I agree. This is this is a skill you have to keep doing the easy cases because sometimes easy is a little bit harder then a moderate heart, and then a super heart. And so I would tell anybody's just starting. You shouldn't start with someone that you're getting referred. If you're finishing fellowship and training, you haven't done that much, work with somebody.
0: You were talking earlier about blind DNCs. You're like, no more of those, you say. What are you using now? If you're going to do a endometrial sampling in the operating room, you're not doing a cure, what are you using and how are you evaluating endometrial pathology and how are you treating endometrial pathology in the operating room?
1: That's a good question. So almost all my patients have already had a diagnostic hysteroscopy or an SIS in the office. And by tradition, they always always have, a say, a PIPEL in the office. So when I bring them to the OR, like yesterday, the hystroscope that you use, the tissue retrieval system, I use tissue retrieval systems for soft things polyps retain products. Okay. Fibroids, I only use the bipolar resectoscope. And that's just me. You're speaking with me. There are people who love the tissue retrieval systems for fibroids. I do not think that they get into always getting the entire fibroid out. I think there are very few type zeros. There are many more type one and type two fibroids, which I think personally with the tissue retrieval system is hard to remove. But what I do, like the ladies yesterday, I take out the polyp, the bigger thing, that three-centimeter polyp. Take that out with my tissue retrieval system. They take the sock out. I finish it. They put another sock in. And then I do what I call an uninterrupted, visually directed endometrial curatage with my tissue retrieval system. And you have to sometimes let your uterine pressure down so that that uterine wall falls right into your space and that you haven't also artificially... Push the fibroid, a sessile fibroid, flat. That you miss something. So I I usually do two separate specimens. There was a case a couple of months ago. I looked in. There was clear fibroid, older woman, a clear polyp, and then near her lower uterine segment, something quote just didn't look right. It looked more friable. So I took three separate specimens. And so once you get the fibroid out, keep your scope inside put your foot on the pedal and suck out all that fluid so that your your tubing has 250 cc's of saline. So you don't want to contaminate. So I take out that, put another sock in. Now polyp near the tubal on the left. Take that out, run my fluids. I'm still, my scope is in. And then the last I saw this area, it just didn't quote look right. And I tell my patients, my eyes are not a microscope. What I need to know is that this is not atrophy. And it turns out, The cancer was the lower uterine segment, quote, polypoid vascular, you know, these kind of the yellow plaques that you might see. That was, you know, she could have, the, the fibroid and the polyp could have just been present in a passenger and not the problem. The problem for that lady, it was the cancer in the lower uterine segment. So you can take as many biopsies as you want. Just make sure that you keep that scope in put your foot on the pedal, run that so you get out pushing that clear fluid back into the trap, i.e. the sock. And then the nurse just changes in and you label it, you know, whatever it is. So that's how, yeah, I don't put a curette in. And that's my trick question of my residents are, we, we do the procedure and then I'll say, well, what do we need to do next? And they look back at the table. Oh, you need to do a curettage. And I say, well, tell me why. Tell me more. You have just visually gone all the way around. What more are you going to get with your curette, except a perf? Okay, there's just so no. You're reason. not
0: you're not like mowing the lawn here with the device. You're not just sampling, or or are you? Okay. I do.
1: No, I do a full anterior wall, posterior wall. Yeah, and just
0: representative sampling. You just kind of take entire, bites. I mean, of, you cannot
1: get every millimeter. But like yesterday, you know how the tubal ostia can be very concave you get up in that little area. I mean, I've picked up cancers. It's not in the, your biopsy or curatage would never get up, but some people have a very deep looking tubal oste. You know what I'm saying? That's why endometrial ablations don't work because it doesn't get up there and burn all that endometrium as it's going out to the tubes. And then they get hematometria. Then they get retrograde bleeding. Then they get swollen bloody tubes and they get endometriosis and they have cyclical pain. So no, I do a visually directed, and I told the residents in my op notes, don't you ever put D and C on my patients, okay? The way that we do this, it is labeled exam under anesthesia, dilation of cervix, hysteroscopically directed endometrial polypectomy, and hysteroscopically directed visual endometrial curatage, so if I retire one day, people want to go back and look at what I've done. I never, ever, almost ever use a curette. They can just take that off my table.
0: You're doing directed biopsies and you're doing...
1: Like when we do, we're trying to push this through now for retained products of conception. Why are you sucking the whole uterus? Okay, suction curette for retained products. What business do we give to the reproductive endocrinologists? Asherman's. Most Ashermans are caused by what? Retained products, doing a full quote DNC suction of a missed abortion after postpartum. Well, postpartum hemorrhages are different, but you have a woman that's delivered six, eight weeks later. She's still bleeding. She's been on two or three birth control pills. You better look in there. It could be the smallest little piece of retained products that bleed, just like polyps. I mean, these things don't have to be that big.
0: So are you using a hysteroscopic morcellator for that? The tissue
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Retrieval system. Yeah, for my retained products, I get I don't do OB, haven't done it in decades, but I see a number of patients with retained products. Yeah, that are referred in.
0: So, so let's talk about fibroids, the thing that I'm most curious about because you said you took 20 plus fibroids out of someone hysteroscopically and I need to I need to see this. I need to understand how that happens. And so are you getting MRIs on these patients and seeing where they all are? How do you work them up? How do you address how do you decide what fibroids to take? How do you know how far to go? Because you're going from below, right? You don't have the the visualization of the outside, the serosa Correct. of your depth. So how do you how do you do these tough cases?
1: Well, usually they're gonna be if you're doing SIS or if they have a lot of fibroids, you can't distend the cavity and they're bleeding, I do MRI. Okay. So again, start with easy. Sometimes they have, the uterus just doesn't distend. So you might have an MRI, but with this issue, I think the uterus remodels itself during your surgery. Okay. So all of my patients with fibroids preoperatively, they all get oral uh, mesoprostol the night before. Okay. Helps with cervical dilation and makes the uterus contract and sometimes you think that the patient has one fibroid or two, sometimes that uterus has contracted and more things have pushed in. I do a lot of variability in my intrauterine pressure pressures up, pressures down, and that kind of leads to a massage of the uterus. So sometimes these intramural fibroids will pluck themselves into the cavity. So what do I do? I want to know the patient's fertility wishes because if they want children, after the surgery, I put in an intrauterine Foley catheter. Sometimes we can fill it up. Depends on how much goes in, anywhere from 10 to 30 cc's of sterile water. They stay on that. They have oral estrogen for a month. Usually it's esterase, one milligram twice a day. I see them 14 days, 16 days after surgery, but they deflate their catheter two days before. Before And then I'm looking inside the uterine cavity. What am I looking for? I want to make sure these walls are not agglutinated or stuck. You will always see an scar, but you know that you don't see the fibroids anymore. And then I let them finish their total 30 days. Um, It's not healed at that point. The intrauterine foley is out. They then take full 30 days of their estrogen. And then after all the estrogen is gone, uh, in fact, I only send them home with esterase, one milligram, BID, I send 60 tablets. I see them two weeks later. Then I say to them, okay, it looks like it's healing well. You can still see the scar. And at day when that bottle is empty, then it's just a for 14 days by mouth. You were to take this every day, even if you start bleeding. Okay, don't call me. I don't want all these calls. Just take your pills. And then when you finish your a you will normally have a withdrawal bleed within two to 14 days. And then that's now at about four weeks, five weeks after surgery, and I look again. And by then, in my own experience, the endometrium is healed, so you don't uh, you don't see the scar almost. You don't see Asherman scar tissue, and that's how I handle so it. You,
0: so you look twice. So you, yes. So myomectomy, intrauterine Foley catheter, ten to thirty CCs,
1: well, it, whatever the uterus fills up with. Okay.
0: P- oral a milligram twice a day for two weeks.
1: A month, so they go on with sixty cap- uh, for
0: for a month. Mm-hmm. But you're looking; it fully comes out after two weeks. Correct. You're looking after two weeks.
1: Yeah, just to see what. It's then a-
0: in for how long?
1: Fourteen days or so two weeks of that.
0: Fourteen days.
1: Then they get the withdrawal bleed,
0: and then look a third time.
1: No, second time, just second. So first is looking at two weeks because they're on the estrogen only. Then the bottle's out, ma'am. Take your s es- your agestin for two weeks. When you finish that last pill, within two days to two weeks, you're going to bleed. Then you call my office, tell me when you start your period, because then we're going to ske- schedule you the following week. So that way, everything is re You've given them estrogen. And really, you don't even see your footprint where you left it.
0: But you're rebuilding it, in a sense, with the estrogen. Yeah. Is that the idea? Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. So many people don't do that. I've been doing this for so long. I wish I had done some kind of study. And again, many things that we do in medicine, we don't always have all the answers, but you have to do something. And to me, when you have kissing lesions, now if if she's 49 and doesn't want kids, I don't do all of this. She's ambivalent. I'm going to do this. And I can almost tell you, I don't see scar tissue. And the other thing that I think I do different than REIs do, they put in five cc's only for the little balloon. Everybody says, oh my God, she's going to be in so much pain. We teach them on the post-op area. They go home with a syringe, how to deflate it. If you have a little bit of cramping, let out no more than two to three cc's at a time. We tell them how many cc's we put in to start with and then they self-manage this. If you get below, it's rare that they are deflating at a lot of, uh, the normal uterus holds about eight to ten cc's. So if they get below a certain amount, that's what happens. I tell them don't call me if the balloon falls out and it's not their fault. And just keep taking your estrogen and come in in two weeks because we do not, it's rare, I'm going to say 5% of the time, the uterus is a muscle and it just comes out. But no, I don't like a lot of phone calls, okay? And so I give all these instructions and we come back in and then we just take a look and go from there. So I think putting more fluid in the balloon, there's something as like some catheter I tried that looks like a square. I don't want to bad mouth any company, but I almost couldn't get the darn thing out. I don't forgot what it was called. I tried it once. I'm like, no, this, and it wasn't that big. It looks like a little pillow or something. So I just use an old-fashioned Foley and sterile water. You don't want to put saline because saline can crystallize and then it won't deflate. And so that's important into the Foley. And then they have a leg bag, little tiny leg bag so they can work, they can shower. And they we teach them how to. it's going to drain a little bit. It's not hemorrhaging, but how to change that. So that's our little protocol.
2: I wanted to just ask a sort of big question, which is where do you see the future of of hysteroscopy going? I've seen a lot of innovation around the edges, bipolar hysteroscopy, more morselation techniques. Like, are we going to see?
0: RF ablation.
2: Yeah, RF ablation. Like, are we going to see like AI generated something? I don't know. (laughs) what. Well, I think the two interesting things that,
1: over the years, I've been hearing or asked about there. I don't know what happened to the company, but and I'm sure other doctors that are listening may know about. It, have been asked, but you know, one of the things that we're doing now, if you want a tubal ligation, what are we doing? Whether you're cesarean doing salpingectomies, right? If you're doing an interval tubal doing are doing salpingectomies. Why? Because we believe that, or some believe that uh, ovarian cancer starts in the fallopian tube. So I have personally been asked by an unnamed company to consider looking through the fallopian tube. Now, I don't know what that looks like. Okay, I guess if I did a 100 of them, I might, you know, see something. But the idea that some companies are developing these small micro hysteroscopes or something that you can feed into it.
2: Oh, it's like a, it's like a ureteroscope, basically.
1: Probably, yeah. The other thing, what I'm so upset that Esher was taken off the market. I think that the last hurrah for hysteroscopy right now, if we could, in the office again, safely, uh, with high efficacy, do a sterile tubal blockage for pregnancy prevention in this era that we're all living in but the amount of obesity and overweight that we see and the number of people with multiple abdominal surgeries, sometimes, quote, the quick, like you said, Mark, you know, all the tubal ligations so simple, but sometimes there's bad anatomy in there and injury. So I think if we could conquer the fallopian tube consistently for sterilization as an office-based procedure, much like vasectomy. Um, And when I was doing esures, patients would get up and go back to work and activities and all that. They didn't have to take off a day. So I hope that a company um, will really develop the right protocols, the right instrument in order for this to happen. And I think um, if we can get trained for that. So the AI part, you know, perhaps a pattern recognition for uh, hyperplasia, malignancy. Um, The current RF things that we're doing is transcervical myomectomies, but that's really for intramural fibroids. It's not for in the cavity. You know what I'm saying? So that's the what? That's the Sonata procedure. And then the laparoscopic approach is the RF energy is the Assessa procedure. I think for any program that, and which I'm happy to say we started, I started with interventional radiologists in the early 90s as a collaborative practice. In fact, Amy Parks, we have a paper when she was a fellow on uterine fibroid embolization. That is a darn great procedure. The biggest side effect, and we're talking about 5 to 15% of patients, is that they could have intramural fibroids, but as the uterus contracts and gets smaller, these fibroids migrate into the intracavitary space, or you could potentially have a necrotic lyomyoma. So programs that institutions that want to have a truly collaborative practice with an interventional radiologist, you need to have someone that's expert in hysteroscopy for those small cases where the fibroids could be two months to two years or longer where they prolapse and they end up with leukorrhea, they're dead, they're trying to slough off. So I think that that's really important. The other role for hysteroscopy is these big myomas that expel just naturally these big vaginal myomectomies. In fact, we have just this month, our old, old fellow, our last fellow, just published in Fertility and Sterility for this, I think it's this edition, a video that we did, this huge myoma. I mean, it was big. And I have another one that was, somebody said, do you want forceps? It was 15 centimeters that I did a vaginal myomectomy on and you could pat yourself on the back, oh my God, we got this out. You better close that uterus tight, put your hysteroscope in, and look again, because there can be other intracavitary fibroids that then you pull out your resectoscope for. And so, you know, I just think the sky is the limit for looking if uh, for leucorrhea. Very common things that you can see, cancer, polyps. My mentor always said to speak about her case in her 70s, gynecologist, no bleeding, but thought she had urinary incontinence. People, they get chronic. They think they have chronic BV. I'm thinking, I'm blocking the woman that's at Michigan. That's a big vulvar expert. She's asked for a couple of my slides. Could, Hope. Hope, yeah. Hope has me. Yeah, she's very good. Yeah. And I said, you know, people are like, Linda, how do you get all these cases? I said, listen to your patients. They keep coming in with discharge. You better look in that uterus. They don't always have to bleed. And you felt, like my mentor. Cute mixed malaria sarcoma. Never bled a minute, but she just thought, oh, she's older and she's just wet all the time. No. And so, God willing, she's still here. She's one of my, at the Cleveland Clinic, that's my personal sponsor back in the day. And I just think about, oh my God, I could have just written her off and said, go see your old guy. And that wasn't weird, just the way she described this leakage. And so, that is another use for hysteroscopy. My first book chapter that I did, whoever this reviewer, what I've never heard of using a hysteroscope for leukorrhea, And I feel like saying, well, you better start learning about it because it's very helpful. And I said, please don't change this because that is an indication for using your scope. So I think, Amy, the sky is the limit. And we just need to be empowered for organizations to purchase office-based procedures. What's happening to gynecologists, even at the Cleveland Clinic? What is the complaint? We don't have enough block time, right? Can't add new doctors. Even our colleges are complaining not enough block time. So why are we taking women to the OR for diagnostic purposes when you can just do a diagnostic in the office, By right? Now, patients that are afraid, the trauma trauma patients, yes, I will take them. And early on, my residents would say to me, how come all your cases ha- always have something in the uterus? And they go scrub with somebody else. Well, they're not doing diagnostic procedures in the office and you have a normal uterus. Those are the cases. Then you just put a marina in or you work, put them on birth control or something. You can really be reassured about things. Another thing is all these women that come in with, um, oh, my IUD fell out once, twice or three times. Okay, if you're thinking of using an IUD for contraception and for heavy bleeding, please look in that uterus before you put a $1,000 device in. So it's not securely and there. Malposition falls out. And it also gives the patient by looking, they'll say, oh, I was told I could never have another IUD. Well, you could look at, I have so many pictures of like a bow and arrow where somebody's forcefully put the morena or other devices and is piercing through a big myoma, of course they're not going to get relief from their bleeding. You see what I'm saying? I'm getting ready to do surgery in a couple of weeks on a woman that someone put an IUD in, Mirena, has been bleeding for one year, 20 to 30 days out of a month. So you ask Mark, well, you know, what do people think? It's like uh, it was a no-brainer to me to say, and she switched doctors in in the city, patient comes, I said, I'm going to hysteroscope in. Your bleed is that better? and big old fibroid. Taking her doing her surgery, I think next week. So think beyond what the average doc is doing. Okay, and there is no downside. The risk of infection is low, and the office. The risk of perforation, the risk of not being able to do it is so low. Why not look when there's something equivocal? And that's my, and use your hysteroscope as a stethoscope.
0: I think we started with that. I think we can end with that. I think that's a great way. To think about how to do better for our patients, to evaluate and treat uh, uterine pathology uh, with the hysteroscope, Dr. Bradley, Linda Bradley, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. It's always fun talking to you. I always learn so much, and I think our listeners are going to have to get out a pen and piece of paper and take notes from today's show. So we're grateful that you were able to join us. Amy, it's always a pleasure getting to do this with you. And and Linda, thank you again for doing it. And we appreciate you coming on Backtable OBGYN.
2: Thank you, Linda.
1: Okay. I'd love to come back. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to follow the podcast, rate it five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable OBGYN on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable OBGYN is hosted by myself, Mark Hoffman.
2: And Amy Park.
0: Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon. With support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and...